John chapter 3, verse 16. If you need a Bible, our ushers will be wandering the aisles with uh, these fancy blue ones. We're going to the book of John, and what we've decided to do for uh, this season in our community is to take probably the most well-known verse in the Bible, right? I mean, if, if you're a college football player, and you've got the eye black on, and you're going to pin one verse under the eye black, John 3.16 is a good bet. If you go to football, and by the way, I have football on the brain, and here's the reason, okay? My team's horrible, horrible. For those of you that don't know, the Ohio State Buckeyes are close to the heart of Jesus. And he has decided for a season to allow them to suffer, as God does every now and again. When his chosen people, he takes them into the desert to teach them lessons, to spur them on to greater greatness in the future. And right now, it's a dry and desert season. If you go to football games, what's the verse you're going to see? John 3.16. If you've grown up in church, what's one of the first verses beyond Jesus wept that you memorize? John 3.16. So what we want to do is we believe the worst, the, the actual worst thing we can do as followers of Jesus is to believe we've got Jesus all figured out. Exactly. And what happens is that very often we think, well, I've heard this, I know this, I've got this down. And so we wanted to take the most familiar verse in the Bible and spend 10 weeks on it going phrase by phrase through one verse to make the point that anybody can open the Bible and benefit. And at the same time, you can spend your whole life studying it and never reach the bottom. And both things are true. So John chapter 3, verse 16, would you read it with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so far we've looked at, for God so loved, and then last week was the world. So now we're going to accelerate the pace by looking at three words. That he gave. And really we'll drop the that off, and we'll just look at he gave. So go to the book of Genesis, if you will, chapter 11. What does it mean that God gave? We're going to spend the next couple of weeks uh, savoring the idea that he gave his son. So this morning we're going to look at he gave. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to wander around a very confusing passage in the Old Testament. If you get lost, you are in good company, number one. Number two, relevance is half an hour away. All right, if you're thinking, how does this help me get married? It will not. How does this help me manage my finances? It will not. How, does this get me warm? No, it will not. What it will do, hopefully, is to uh, provide you with a sense of freedom that you've not had prior to this. How's that for overselling? John, or Genesis chapter 11, verse Let's go 27. Now, if you're new to the Bible, this is what we're about to read is one of the reasons why you, you, you probably don't read it much. This is, this is crazy. Genesis 11, verse 27. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abraham and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah? 
Milcah, we'll call her that. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. And if you're new to the Bible, you're going, this is awful. (laughs) Now, the big verse that I want to draw your attention to is verse 30. Now, Sarai, and she gets renamed Sarah later in the story, she was childless because she was not able to conceive. So we meet a guy named Abram. Abram has a wife named Sarai. She is barren and cannot have children. All right, that's all we know about this couple. And then we go into Genesis 12, verse 1. Out of nowhere, God approaches this man Abram and says, oh, and, and if, you're, if you're a regular here, you know we look at this verse all the time. <laughs> Annoyingly so, probably. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And then, at least in my Bible, it's indented, and there are quotes around it, because this, it's drawing your attention to the fact that this is a very great poetic promise. The reason we start here a lot is because the rest of the Bible is an outworking of this promise, very early in the biblical story. He says to this man, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. Now, what he means by that is that you're going to have kids. And those kids will be so numerous, they will be a nation. I will bless them. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who curse you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Now, we have no idea why God picked this guy. The text doesn't say. It's just out of nowhere. All we know about Abram is that he and his wife are getting up in age and they can't have kids. And so God shows up and says, hey, check this out. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you kids. I'm going to give you my blessing. And then through the nation that your children will make will come some, somebody who will bless the whole world. That's a pretty good deal. Would you agree? Now, driving... The narrative from this point forward is the fact that God doesn't keep his promise immediately. Have you ever noticed this about God? That, you know when people say God's timing is perfect? I disagree. God's timing is slow. I, I, I want God to keep his promises yesterday, right? So what God does is he lets this couple grow older and older and older and older And he keeps telling him, hey, I'm going to give you lots of kids. And Abram just keeps going, let's just start with one. Let's just start with one. Go to Genesis 15. Now, he gave is the phrase we're looking at this morning. This is where it gets really crazy. You may be thinking, it's already felt crazy. It's going to get worse. After this... The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and I am your very great reward. Now, in chapter 14, Abram just defeated four kings. And he had the opportunity to take a ton of loot from this battle and chose not to. So God comes to him and says, hey, that's awesome. I'm your reward. Abram, though, is stoked and not so much. Verse 2. Sovereign Lord... What can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. 
And everybody went, Eliezer of Damascus, that sounds horrible. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Now, one of the things I love about Jewish folks is they demonstrate something called chutzpah. It's boldness with God. It's like God says, I'm going to be your reward. And Abram says, you know, that's nice, but what exactly can you give me? Because you haven't kept the promise from two chapters ago. The word of the Lord came to him, and I love that God doesn't zap him. The word of the Lord came to him, this man, Eliezer of Damascus, and everyone said, Eliezer of Damascus? Sorry. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And then God took him outside and said, hey, look at the stars. If indeed you can count them, so shall your offspring be. As many stars as are, that's how many kids you will have. Abram has a couple of thoughts, suggestions, concerns. <laughs> Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. But then God says to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur to give you this land to take possession of it. Abram, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So twice... God says, hey, hey, I'm your reward. Abram, okay, well, that's nice, but remember that kid? God says, no, 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 don't worry. Look at the stars. And he does this several times. I mean, this isn't the only time Abram's got a few worries. So one time he, he says, look at, the, look at the dust of the earth. That's how many kids you'll have. Look at the sand on the seashore. That's how many kids you'll have. Look at the stars of the sky. That's how many kids you'll have. Part of the promise, too, that God had made is that God would give this nation a land to dwell in. Abram, well, how can I be sure you'll keep your promise? Again, thankful that God doesn't zap him. God, now this is the crazy part. So I'm going to read the whole story. We're all going to go, what? And then we'll go through it and try to explain it a little bit, all right? So the Lord, in response to his question, said, bring me a heifer. That would be a female cow who has not given birth yet. Thank you very much. A goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So God, how can I know? Bring me a heifer. <laughs> I'm just going to say that to my wife every time. Hey, when are you going to be home? I'm going to be home at six. Well, make sure you're home at six. How will I know for sure you'll be home at six? Bring me a heifer. sorry i'm so sorry if you're new to our community bring me a heifer a goat a ram each three years old along with a dove and a young pigeon now abram knew exactly what god was asking because he brought all of these animals to him cut them in two arranged the halves opposite each other the birds however he did not cut in half then and and talk about out of nowhere the birds of prey came down on the carcasses. So if you're a Star Trek fan, who are you thinking right there? Klingons. Now, then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain 
That for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. What country is that going to be? In the future, Israel will be enslaved where? Egypt, thank you very much. They will be mistreated there. They will be enslaved. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. Afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between these cut up pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, Dear descendants, I give this land. Now, the natural question that this raises is, what in the world are we talking about right here? Bring me a heifer. So what happens is that Abram says, how do I know I'm going to get this land? God then initiates something called a blood covenant which was very, very common in the ancient Near East. Now let me explain it just the way the text does. What you would do in a blood covenant is that you would take animals and you would cut them in half long ways so that they would fold over and the blood from the animals would pool in the middle. Okay, Mondo, fire up the picture. Okay, this is from Follow the Rabbi's website right here, Dr. Ray Vanderlaan. So this is how it kind of could look. The birds were too little to cut in half, so you put one on each side. You wanted that pool of blood. Some call it a blood path. And what you would do, now listen to me. There are still folks that do this today in Bedouin cultures. What you would do, you didn't have notary publics back then and justice systems, and so what you would do if you really entered into a serious agreement is that and it was called a covenant that two people would get together. And in, in, in the case of a greater party and a lesser party, the greater party would dictate the terms of the covenant for both. And then the greater party would walk through the blood first. Next slide. And they would cover themselves in the blood. Okay, now you can focus back on me. A dude is handsome. Hence the phrase, el grande guapo. Now, the the greater party would walk through the blood. And here's the key, guys. Get this. By walking through the blood, you you were saying, if I were to break the terms of the covenant, you can treat me. You can do to me what we've done to the animals. In other words, you can put me to death and walk in my blood. Okay, that's the covenant. And then the lesser party would walk through, secondly, and say, if I do not keep my part of the covenant, you can do to me what we've done to these animals. That's a blood covenant. Now, there were lots of other covenants. This was kind of the serious one. Are you with me on this so far? Now, I want you to notice several things. The text says Abraham got these animals, split them in half long way, folded them over, And then birds of prey came, and he had to drive them away. Some commentators think that this was actually foreshadowing that God's people were going to be oppressed by other nations because the birds, they think, were symbols of some of the Egyptian gods. So Abram drives them away, 
and then darkness falls. It says that Abram falls into a deep sleep. In Hebrew, it's a Hebrew way of saying he had a vision. He's not sleeping like when you go to bed at night. He's in a trance. He's having a vision. And then it says, a dreadful darkness came upon him. Now you've got to understand, again, that's a Hebrew phrase saying he was terrified out of his mind. And here's the reason he was terrified. What was God's part in this agreement? To give Abram what? Land? Children? Messiah? Right? What was Abram's part in this agreement? Go to Genesis 17, verse 1. Now, circumcision is going to be a part of this thing. Obviously, receiving it by faith is a part of this thing. But notice this part. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Another word of saying blameless is what? Perfect. So why is Abram terrified? Because if he walks through the blood... He's saying to God, if I or my descendants isn't blameless, you can do to me what we've done to the animals. Do you get that? Hello? Okay, brown room, much more responsive, blue room. Blue room, did you get that? Now, okay, there's no need to be annoyed with me. I'm just... So when it says a dreadful darkness falls upon Abram, he knows if he puts his toe into the blood, he is saying to God, unless I'm blameless, you can do this to me. Now, what happens next? The text says it gets dark, and then two things appear. A smoking fire pot and a torch of fire. Now, smoke and fire are two pictures of what? God, thank you very much. Smoke, at the top of Mount Sinai, there's smoke when God's presence descends. God leads the nation of Israel through a cloud or pillar of smoke. Right when the temple is filled in Isaiah, it says it's filled with smoke. So smoke is a picture of God. And who walks through the path first? The greater party, right? So it says that smoke walks through the pieces. So that's God saying, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to give you blessing and a nation and a Messiah. Does Abram walk through? In the text we just read, does Abram walk through? No. God stops Abram from walking through, and instead, what walks through next is fire. Never in the Bible is fire used as a symbol or an image of humanity. It's used as a picture of God, a burning bush. He's a consuming fire. Pentecost, tongues of fire, right? A pillar of fire leads Israel. So what has God done? He has said by walking through twice that God himself makes the covenant with God. 
Not Abram. So think about what just happened. God walks through and says, unless I give you land, descendants, children, a Messiah, right? Unless I do that, you can do this to me, which, of course, we couldn't. And instead of Abram walking as the lesser party, God walks through again. Saying, Abram, if you or your descendants isn't blameless, you can do this to me. Do you see what God's just done? He's just sentenced Jesus of Nazareth to death. Because will Abraham and his descendants be blameless? Not even remotely. God, in Genesis 15, has promised by God's self... He will pay the price for breaking, for Abram's breaking of this covenant. Do you see that? Now this is amazing. Because what happens next, as you push through the story, is that Abram gives birth to a son, Isaac. Isaac gives birth to a son, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. These 12 tribes are enslaved for 400 years, rescued, brought to a mountain where God descends in fire and smoke, and there tells them that on a regular basis, they are to take a heifer, a goat, a ram, a pigeon, and a dove, and to sacrifice those animals twice a day, every single day to sacrifice them and to take the blood of these animals and to sprinkle the blood on the altar. Now, you have to understand, the reason God commanded them to do it wasn't because these animals bought, bought forgiveness for Israel. They didn't do sacrifices in order to buy forgiveness. Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats doesn't cleanse us. Why then every day at nine and every day at three did they have to slaughter animals? Well, the Jews believe the reason they did that is because as they sprinkled the blood on the altar, they were saying to God, remember to keep your promise. Remember that to Abram, the father of our faith, you promised to pay the price in blood. If Abram and his descendants was not blameless. So literally, this was a testimony where they would say to God, God, keep your promise. Are you tracking with me? So every day at nine, mid-morning, and every day at three, there would be somebody with a sundial and somebody or with an hourglass. And when the time came close... They would give a signal to somebody up on the corner of the temple called the pinnacle with a shofar. They would blow the shofar, which was a ram's horn. They would blow the shofar. The priest would slaughter the animal and sprinkle the blood. And some records tell us that whenever you heard the shofar twice a day, every single day, all of Israel, excuse me, all of Jerusalem would be silent for a few moments while they recognized God keep your promise now this went on for hundreds and hundreds of years and there's one particular friday though where the game changed jesus of nazareth had entered the city 
the Sunday prior on the day you were to pick out sacrificial lambs for Passover. Josephus tells us that during high holidays, Jerusalem would swell from between 80, uh, uh, from, from about 80 to 100,000 to almost a million people. This Jesus had been calling, causing quite a ruckus in the temple complex all week. He was arrested Thursday night, tried. And it was a Friday just like any other, except outside of the city gates, above an old stone quarry, three men were put to death. The one in the middle looked like he was already dead. They crucified, they began the crucifixion at nine in the morning. You would be shocked at how many huge biblical events happen at nine in the morning or three in the afternoon. And then you have, with the sundial, the priest giving the signal, the shofar is blown for the three o'clock sacrifice. When did Jesus die? At three o'clock. As the lamb was being slaughtered for Passover, Jesus of Nazareth died at the precise moment that sacrifice took place. And what was the last thing he said? In the book of John, it says, he said, it is finished. And the word that Jesus uses is a transaction word. It's a word that means a contract has been paid in full. So what was finished? What was finished was not only Jesus' sufferings, not only the need for any more sacrifices, what was finished was the agreement that God made with himself on behalf of Abram in Genesis 15, that God self would pay the price for the failure of Abram and his descendants to keep their end of the bargain. Do you see that? Now, I don't know about you, that just floors me. Because what we have is not an Old Testament and a New Testament. We have one story. And it's a story of a God who so loved the world that He gave. Go to the book of Romans, chapter 3. Paul says this differently, but makes the same point. Are we preaching yet? This, just, this stuff blows me away. And i got to tell you, outside of being a coach for the Ohio State Buckeyes, I have the greatest job, although there will be an opening after this year. <laughs> I do have the greatest job ever. Hey, Mike, well, what we want you to do is to love people, lead people, and teach the Bible. Oh, okay. Sounds horrible. Romans chapter 3. Now, if you're new to the Bible, and you thought... Terah and Nahor and Sarah, that thing was painful. Where do you get a load of this? I'm going to try to interpret a bit as we go. But there's a point in here where Paul, from a New Testament perspective, makes the same point that we were just looking at in Genesis 15. So, Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Now, apart from the Old Covenant... The rightness of God has been made known to which all the Old Testament testifies. This ability to be right with God 
is given to people through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference if you're Jewish. And there's no difference if you're not Jewish. Every single one of us is not blameless. Right? Everyone has sinned. The reason Paul impresses this point upon us is because he wants us to realize we haven't kept our end of the bargain. We have all fallen short. And we are all made right before God freely by grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, track this. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His what? Abram, if you do not keep your end of the deal, you can do to me what we've done to the animals. Shed their blood. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness. Now, the better word here is to demonstrate His justice. Because in his patience he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies. Now that is a whole lot of big words. But here's the point. Why did God send Jesus? To satisfy the justice that was demanded by the covenant God made with God's self in Genesis 15. What was the covenant? Abram, if you do not keep your end of the deal, be blameless, you can do this to me. So to satisfy God's justice, he puts forward Jesus. Now Jesus, he wasn't, he wasn't arguing along the way. This was voluntary from Jesus' perspective. And Hebrews tells us it was with great joy. But do you see See, for me, I don't need the cross. It'd be fine with me if God just looked over the lip of heaven and said, hey, Mike, you're forgiven. Thanks. Why did Jesus have to die? To satisfy the promise. To pay the debt that God's own sense of justice demanded from God's self. I mean, this blows my mind. The reason that you and I can now come before God boldly is because our debt has been paid. We weren't blameless. But instead, God paid the price Himself. Now, to talk about what this means, I want to give you a really silly example. When we go before God, and we confess our sin. I was, at a, I was at a conference where the speaker asked everybody, hey, when you go before God and confess your sin, how many of you appeal to God's sense of mercy? Every hand went up. Of course I want him to be merciful. And then he said, well, how many of you appeal to God's sense of justice? <laughs> no. No hand went up. I like justice for other people I like mercy for me, right? 
Now think about the difference. What did Paul just say? Christ was put forward to satisfy God's justice. Now think about the difference between appealing to God's mercy and God's justice. Silly example coming. I hate coffee. You people that drink coffee have awful breath. It is, I don't like coffee cake. I don't like coffee ice cream. I moved out here. The Starbucks phenomenon happened, and all of a sudden I felt like a loser, an outcast, and a misfit. Because people would meet in these coffee shops, and I'd order water. You know, I didn't have one of the cool little cups with the little sleeves. And I I felt this way until someone encouraged me to try chai tea. And the benefits of chai tea are numerous. Not bad breath. Well, it's not coffee. That's like the number one benefit. Uh, Not a lot of caffeine. Sugar, yes. Caffeine, no. Sugar's way healthier. (laughs) So all of a sudden, I could now enter in with great joy to Starbucks culture. I could have a chai tea, and i got to be honest, I felt a little little self-conscious ordering it. You know, everyone's going like, I'll have this like macho latte with four shots of, you know, energy or whatever. And I was going, I'd like a chai tea latte. And so, you know, I kind of mumbled it a little bit. And then I'd, ha- I'd take the sleeve, you know, and cover up where it marked the order down. And nobody knew. But suppose, in my hypothetical universe, I go to one particular Starbucks. And suppose, in my hypothetical universe, I like chai and a little bit of the perfect oatmeal every morning. Keeps me regular. Suppose there's a man behind the counter named Eric. Suppose I very frequently forget my wallet. Suppose this happened for several days in a row. I walk in on day one, Eric, hey, I need a chai and I need some, uh, some of that perfect oatmeal. Hold the fruit topping. I'll take the brown sugar, however. Eric says, great, it's seven bucks. Bro, I don't have my wallet. I'll pay you Tuesday for some Starbucks today. <laughs> What's Eric going to do? Well, he's my friend, so he might, you know. Okay, but I'm keeping this, like, tab open. Great. Next day I come in, Eric, I need my chai. Eric, great, you got your wallet. Bro, I don't. Sorry, man. Bro, I need my chai and my perfect oatmeal. What's Eric going to do? Dude, come on. You're going to get me fired. All right, last day, and you owe me 21 bucks tomorrow. Third day, I come in. Bro, I know I don't have my money. I just wanted to see if you'd give me a chai out of the goodness of your heart. What's he going to say? No! No, I'm not getting fired over you, son. That's scenario one. Scenario two, suppose my wife knows I like some chai and perfect oatmeal. And suppose she knows I forget my wallet. So she gets one of those prepaid gift cards, puts 100 bucks on it, and does not give it to me, but gives it to Eric. (laughs) And says to Eric, Eric, whenever he comes in and orders something, just put it on the card and as long, I mean, until it gets down to like 10 bucks, the minute it gets down to 10 bucks, call me and I'll put more on it. So I come walking in. I don't know this has happened. 
I order some chai and some oatmeal, bro, I don't have my wallet. He says, no worries, it's been taken care of. I'm a happy man. Now, point of the dumb example. In scenario one, what did I appeal to? Eric's sense of mercy. I couldn't pay, so it was whether or not he was in the mood. In scenario number two with the gift card, what am I appealing to? I'm appealing to a sense of justice. Why? Because it would be unjust for him to charge me again for something that had already been paid for. Would you agree? So when you go before God, do you appeal to his mercy or do you appeal to his justice? What does 1 John say? This very famous verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Why does justice matter? Because he paid for it. He paid for it himself. It's already done. You don't got to go before him and say, God, for the 400th time I confess this and beg for mercy because maybe on time number 401, he's done. The reason we go before him and appeal to his justice is because he himself satisfied the price for my transgression. That's why we boldly go. That's why we can enter in. That's why there's no condemnation. It's already been taken care of. Jesus himself, it is finished. There's no sacrifice left for you. It's all done. And so we don't go before with weak knees and dreadful darkness like Abram did. We get the benefit of seeing the whole story. And the whole story from beginning to end is of a God who satisfies his own promises. Even when it costs him the life of his son. For God so loved the world he gave. Because he keeps his promise. He knew Abram wasn't going to. And he knew that you and I weren't going to. So what's he do? Why did Jesus have to die? Why do we make such a big deal of his blood? Because God himself walked through twice and said, Abram, if you're not perfect, you can walk through my blood. I find that absolutely majestic. So when we talk about this Jesus, we're not talking about religious stuff, are we? We're talking about the God who pursues us, the God who saves us, the God who calls us and invites us, and the God who promises to pay himself for all the screw-ups, the sin, the failure, the mistakes, all that we should have done and didn't do, all that we did do when we could have done something better, all of that swallowed up and paid in full by this Jesus. Would you say that's good news? So, we celebrated communion last week, and far be it from us to celebrate communion two weeks in a row. Sarcastically, he said, we're going to celebrate communion two weeks in a row. Because I could not imagine a more fitting response than communion. Because why do we celebrate the body and the blood? 
It's a reminder that God's kept his promise. It's not just a celebration of the death of Jesus, but it's a recognition that you are now free. It is a recognition that justice has been satisfied and it would be unjust of God to punish you for your sin when that's already been paid for. That's what we're doing. That's what we're celebrating. It's the glory of God to keep his own word. So here's what we're going to do. If you're a disciple of Jesus, we have tables obviously up front and in the back. If you go to a table in the back, come back in. Okay, last week, some of you, oh, sweet, we got, commu- we got takeout, communion. <laughs> and we're, <laughs> no. <laughs> We'd like to celebrate it all together. So take a piece of bread, take some juice, and then go back to your seat and hold them. And then we're going to celebrate together as a family. Make sense? All right, stand up if you would. Ethan, I hope you're close, or otherwise I'm singing, which could be trouble. Close your eyes for a moment. I would like you to pray right now about your own sin and brokenness before God and to appeal to his justice. Here's what I mean. God, you see the lust in my heart. Or you see the pride in my heart. You see the greed in my heart. You see the anger in my heart. You see the jealousy in my heart. You see the desire to hurt and punish and get revenge in my heart. And God, I confess this before you. And I know that you are just to forgive me. We don't do this cavalierly. As Paul writes, we don't, we don't flaunt this. We recognize the great sacrifice God made on our behalf. But when you take communion this morning, when you take the bread and take the cup, we're recognizing his justice this morning, that he keeps his promises to us. And so just for a moment, would you confess before him And then we'll sing, and then you can come as we're singing forward and grab some of the juice, some of the bread. For just for a moment, would you confess before God Almighty?